Chapters 4, 5, and 6 of War and Woman by Mrs. St. Clair Stobart. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Belgrade was reached after forty-eight hours of uneventful travel. It was here that I gained my first experience of war conditions, and as I walked through ward after ward of the first hospital I visited, I understood the value of a first impression. The soldiers objected to open windows, the rooms were small, there was no ventilation, and the evil odors of gangrenous wounds and repulsive smelling disinfectants, the sight of room after room crammed to every available inch of space with men who had been made after a design that was godlike, but were now mutilated out of recognition of any design. That first impression of the results of war had for me the significance of a revelation. I had left England believing with most people that though war is in some ways undoubtedly an evil, it may, on the other hand, as contended, evoke qualities of heroism which would otherwise lie dormant, and that it might thus possibly have a place in the universal scheme. But as I looked at those blood-smeared bodies, those mangled human remnants suffering tortures that had been inflicted by man upon man, and was conscious that in hundreds of hospitals throughout the Balkans, the same ghastly tragedy was at that moment being presented. I knew that sanction for such carnage could only come from sophists whose vision of life is limited to the material. The manhood that has been in war must, says Emerson placidly, be transferred to the cause of peace before war can lose its charm and peace be venerable to men. But if the cause of peace is able, in this twentieth century, to offer no greater opportunities for the exercise of manhood and heroic qualities than were expended in producing suffering like this, then, I felt, life itself has no significance, and the motto that should be inscribed for each newborn child over the portals of its entrance to this world should be, not enter ye into the life everlasting, but abandon hope all ye that enter here. Thenceforth I regarded the suffering in the Balkan hospitals as a litany in which I too must join, a litany to the God of peace, a supplication for the enlightenment of Europe. In this big military hospital which I first visited, there were six hundred wounded soldiers, seven doctors, and fifty untrained volunteer and local woman nurses. All the larger houses and every available gymnasium, school, institution, or hall in Belgrade had, of course, also been converted into improvised hospitals. Conditions varied in accordance with the available resources and the prevailing personality of the director of the hospital. But everywhere the wards were of necessity overcrowded, the staff of doctors pitiably undermanned, and the nursing almost entirely carried out by volunteer local ladies and peasant women utterly untrained for their grim, gigantic task. The smell of some of those unventilated wards, overheated with iron stoves, is not easily forgotten. One room in which the odor and the heat were particularly offensive measured, as I roughly estimated, eighteen feet by fourteen feet, and contained at the moment of my visit twenty-four people, including twelve patients, doctors, nurses, and visitors, and there was not an inch of open window anywhere. One soldier in this room was specially on show. He had been wounded in the left arm, and the bullet was said to have made its exit, after the manner of a conjurer's egg, from his right side. He boasted proudly that he had killed twenty Turks with one bayonet, presumably not all with one thrust. He presented me with an exploded hand-grenade which had been thrown by Kurds and had killed one of his friends. Another soldier in the same room had been hit in the shoulder by a shell, in fourteen places. 
the more the merrier apparently for he was particularly cheerful and showed me with pride a silver snuff-box which he had looted from a dead turkish officer he was in great pain but he was he said trying to get well as quickly as possible so that he might go back and have another go at the turks and yet in many of the rooms though turkish officers were placed in a room apart Turkish soldiers and Albanians, Arnots, were lying in the same wards, mixed indiscriminately amongst their Serbian enemies. The dead, too, frequently lay side by side with the living, undivided even by a screen. I noticed a specially fine-looking young Serbian peasant who, without disfiguring bandages or splints, was lying quiet and motionless with closed eyes. He had been shot through the lungs. "'He is passing over,' said a nurse as I stood and looked at him. In a few minutes he'll be dead. By the bedside sat an old white-haired man dressed in the sheepskin coat, baggy breeches, and white navushtas of the Serbian peasantry. His eyes were riveted on the face of his only son. Suddenly the boy sat up, struggled for breath, gave a last look at his father, and fell back, dead. The old man grasped the unresponsive hand, Pietro, he cried, then looked in consternation at the nurse, a Serbian lady volunteer. She said nothing, but fetched a candle, and lighting it, placed it at the head of the bed. The father understood, and whilst the last offices were performed, sat in silence, his face hidden in his hands. Then, at a word from the nurse, he rose, looked for the last time at the beloved face. A sheet was flung over the dead boy, and in silence the old man, without looking back, walked with bent head down the ward and went out, childless. There was too much to be done for the living, there was no time for sentiment towards the dead or dying. In the next bed, another soldier, about to join his dead comrade, was tossing restlessly and plucking at the blanket. The nurse, impatient to get on to other work, was trying to make the dying man take paper and pencil in his hand. He petulantly refused. "'He won't believe,' she said, "'that he is dying. We want his name. He has no number.' "'But I am not dying,' he gurgled. "'I shall.' "'But the sentence was never finished. "'He fell back. "'He had passed from the reek of battlefields "'and the fetid smell of hospitals "'to a happier rest-house, "'where no number was required. "'Do you write to the relatives?' I asked. "'Oh, no,' replied the nurse, "'a Serbian lady of society. "'There's no time for things like that.' and she hurried away to help put back into his bed a man who, though suffering from compound fracture of both legs, was with others returning from the surgery where he had been taken to have his wounds dressed. For, owing to the scarcity of doctors and the fact that there were few, if any, trained nurses, it was customary in some of the improvised hospitals for all the dressings to be done in the surgery, and the patients had to run the risks and endure the pain of being carried when absolute immobility was essential, by peasant men unused to the work up and down the stairs and through the long winding corridors every time the dressings were changed but great as was the need for trained nurses at belgrade there was no lack of local volunteers and i felt that belgrade was not near enough to the active zone of operations for my purpose i therefore after visiting as many of the improvised hospitals as the hours of one day would allow and after also paying a visit to the wife of the British minister, who was herself working day and night in one of the hospitals, went on to Sofia, the Bulgarian capital. End of chapter 4 Chapter 5 The train took twenty-four hours, the railway service being of course disorganized and given up to conveying soldiers, guns and military stores to the front, 
and carrying the wounded to hospitals along the lines of communication. There was no sleeping accommodation or dining car, and any restaurants there might be at wayside stations were always besieged by starving soldiers, and were quite inaccessible. But a lesson in frugality was given by a fellow traveller, a fine old Serbian priest of the Greek church, to Ched Shlijovic by name. He was more than contented with occasional slender portions of brown bread and cheese, which he had brought with him and never seemed to know the need of drinking. He was in great spirits, having just left his wife and thirteen children, and his parish near Niche to go to the front, not in his ecclesiastical capacity, but to fight. He had enlisted in what was called a free regiment. A regiment, that is, of volunteers. He wore his usual garments, an overcoat over a long black cassock, black breeches, colored, home-knit stockings, long boots, and a black astrakhan cap with a small gilt cross in the center of the front. I asked him in the German language in which we were conversing how he reconciled his Christian principles of loving his brethren with his eagerness to fight and kill his fellow men. He promptly dived into his deep pockets and produced a testament printed in the old slavish text and read aloud in triumphant tone. He who loves his brother will die for his brother. My brethren have for centuries, he said, been killed and tortured by the Turks. I will help to deliver them. I fight he added, with two weapons, the rifle, in mock show he extended his arm and took aim, and with the crucifix, and as he spoke he kissed a crucifix worn on a long chain round his neck, then put it back reverently under his cassock. But, I asked, with sympathetic experience of the inconvenience of skirts when active work is on hand, how do you manage to fight in that long cassock? Isn't it horribly in the way? Oh, no, that's quite simply managed, he replied. See here. And in a second he had tucked it all up on both sides through the pocket slits, leaving his legs quite comfortably free. But my fine old friend wasn't only a warrior and a priest, he was also a poet, and was carrying in his handbag a whole packet of unbound booklets of poems composed by himself. He had written them specially, he said, to stimulate his fellow soldiers at the front, and, judging by some of those which he translated into German for my benefit, he was better as a poet than as a priest. For the verses, though they all breathed the fire and slaughter spirit of medieval times, were full of poetry and inspiration. They afforded to me a naive illustration of the fact that my apparently refined and cultured friend was in reality representative of a plane of thought which elsewhere in Europe would only have been appropriate in the Middle Ages. Indeed, in these poems, the prototype used throughout as the main incentive to heroism was that old 14th-century Serbian hero, Stephen Dushan, self-styled, Tsar of Macedonia, monarch of the Serbs, Greeks, and Bulgarians, and people of the western coast. The Throttler, as he was surnamed by others, and not inaptly, for he was a prodigal builder of churches, sure sign in those days that he had committed many crimes for which atonement was required. The subject of one poem which I specially remember concerned an old man who was pictured as speaking at the graveside of his only son, supposed to have been killed in this same war against the Turks. The father was not grieving over his son's death, but was, on the contrary, congratulating him on his good luck in being now in the presence of the great national hero Dushan, and was urging the boy not to hide his lights, but to be sure to let Dushan know at the first opportunity how brave he had been in battle and to tell him exactly how many of the enemy he had killed before he himself was struck. 
There was a strange pathos in the reflection that all that was noblest in this fine old poet was still breathing the atmosphere of six centuries ago. The intervening years of Turkish tyranny formed a spiritual hiatus which had to be ignored by poets and heroes. It was an arresting thought, too, that this old man, a type of the finest characteristics of the spirit of the past, had sacrificed everything, work, wife, and children, in order that his nation should now at last break through the darkness of those intervening centuries into the light, such as it is, of the Western world. One couldn't help also surmising that if Dushan had not come to a sudden and untimely end, the Slavs might have federated and driven the Turks out of Europe all that long time, six hundred years ago. My old friend firmly believed that Serbia, Bulgaria, and Montenegro were now, at any rate, joined in a lasting federation, and in answer to a doubt which I expressed as to whether, when the Turks had been defeated, there might not be disputes among the Allies as to boundaries, etc., old Tched Shlijevich replied enthusiastically, No, no, why? We are one people. We have one faith, one language. And now soon we shall be free to work out our own destiny. And though they are now in deplorable fashion working out this destiny, along the lines of example set them by Western Europe, the Allies are, in their internecine fights and struggles, only going through the inevitable process of testing their relative strengths before settling down to the work of nationhood. If only Turkey is excluded from re-entrance to the arena, the evolutionary process in the Balkans will probably soon be in full swing. Passions of territorial ambition and of jealousy have, it is true, caused the Allies in their mutual distrust to forget the first object of their crusade. But this is only temporary. The spirit of this old poet-warrior-priest was, as I discovered later, truly the spirit of the Balkan peoples. They had at that time all alike tucked up their cassocks, and, turning their backs on everything in life that was less dear than liberty, had gone with crucifix and rifle and memories of Dushan to the front. End of chapter 5 Chapter 6 As the train drew up at Sofia, the station was a nightmare of bewilderment. Every inch of platform was crowded with brown-uniformed Bulgarian and Serbian soldiers on their way to the front, wounded soldiers returning from the front, and with women who swarmed round every incoming train in the hope of finding relatives and friends. The genus porter alone was missing from this congeries of humanity, and it was a bit of a puzzle to know how to get one's luggage conveyed from the van, where it was mixed up with military and Red Cross stores, ammunition and wounded soldiers to the Hotel Bulgaria. But after a chaotic scramble, this was accomplished, and I hastened to get to work upon my mission. Having been given an introduction to Dr. Radeff, director of the Bulgarian Red Cross Society, and a son-in-law of Monsieur Geshoff, I telephoned for an appointment, and received immediately a courteous invitation from Dr. Radeff to call at once at his house and have a talk. He accepted gratefully on his own account my offer of the services of the convoy corps, but said he must communicate by telephone with Dr. Kiranoff, the PMO, head of the medical and military department, who was then at Stara Zagora, at that time the headquarters of the Bulgarian army. In the meantime, Dr. and Madame Radeff, who both talked excellent French, most kindly offered to show me as many hospitals as I could digest, and took me that same Sunday afternoon to see, first, the Red Cross hospital established in the École Militaire, where one thousand wounded soldiers were being housed. The nursing of the wounded was, throughout Bulgaria, being supervised by Queen Eleonora, 
a princess of the house of Rus, a trained nurse who had been a sister in the Russo-Japanese War, and who not only understood the work, but was devoting herself heroically night and day to the organization of the hospitals. She was at that moment away from Sofia, at Philippopolis, and it was on my return to Sofia a few days later that I had the privilege of meeting her. The nursing at the Red Cross Hospital was in the hands of volunteer ladies of society, who, for the most part, wore linen frocks and white caps and aprons with Red Cross badges on their arms. Though nearly all were untrained and had at first been quite unused to sights of blood and horrors, they one and all gave it as an invariable experience that, though they had previously imagined they would faint at the sight of blood, they had not even felt squeamish when it came to the reality. There was no time, they said, for anything but to work at relieving the overwhelming mass of human suffering which was all around. Nearly all of them had near relatives at the front, and I asked one lady, whose husband and two sons were fighting, if she had heard lately from them and where they now were. She told me that she had not heard for ten days, and that even when they wrote they were not allowed to give the date or the name of the place from which they wrote, nor were they allowed to mention names of those who had been killed or wounded. No list of killed or wounded would be published till the war was over. "'How dreadful for you!' I said sympathetically, as I realized the agony of such prolonged suspense. "'Oh,' my friend replied, "'but it is much better not to know.' If one knew that the worst had happened, one would grieve and that would hinder work, and there is so much to be done. Oh, much better not to know. This same brave spirit, characteristic of Bulgarian womanhood, was also illustrated in the case of another woman, a widow who had lost two sons in the war. The news that they were dead leaked out, and someone told her of the loss. Tears came into her eyes, but she quickly brushed them away, saying sternly, don't think I am crying because my two elder sons are dead. I'm crying because my two younger boys are not old enough to go and help drive out the Turks. And it was this spirit of determination to get rid of the Turk at all costs, because the Turk hampered their evolvement into nationhood, that turned every Bulgarian man into a soldier, every woman into a nurse, and was the ideal which inspired one and all to their marvelous victories. And though, to the politically short-sighted, the subsequent war of Bulgaria against her former allies appears to be a relapse in barbarism and bloodthirsty and territorial greed, even this war, with its disastrous consequences, is an inevitable outcome of that first so-called righteous war. In all evolutionary processes there occur periods of mutation when a rearrangement of the corpuscles of which the atom is composed is essential in order to arrive at a new position of equilibrium, this adjustment of equilibrium amongst the Balkan allies is a necessary preliminary to further stability. The adjustment is by blood and carnage, because that is still the tribunal to which the civilized world resorts. The necessity for this particular outburst of blood and carnage might not at this moment have occurred had it not been for the intervention of the great powers, who prevented Bulgaria from completing her work and driving the Turks out of reach of a renewal of mischief and who set up an autonomous Albania and thereby gave Serbia a grievance which she could only hope to remedy at Bulgaria's expense. No one who has had a first-hand knowledge of the Bulgarian character would believe that the Bulgars were capable of faking an ideal, or of dropping an ideal which they had once visualized, and that they had visualized the ideal of freedom, of emergence into the light of nationhood from the darkness of an asphyxiating tyranny was at the time I was in the Balkans clearly shown by illustrations large and small.
End of chapter 6